What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SupChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cambridge University Judge Business School. And today we'll be discussing a fascinating case study of how one U.S. business is caught in the crosshairs of U.S.-China relations. We're joined by Dan Digre from Misco, a St. Paul, Minnesota-based company that produces high-end audio speakers. Dan recounts how for the past 20 years, his company has sourced and imported many of the raw components for their speakers, such as pieces of stamped metal and magnets from China. As he describes it, his business is centered on bringing these low-tech imports from China and then through the company's expertise in engineering, design, as well as final assembly and testing, they reconfigure them into high-tech products. While there's much to learn about how Misco has developed this model by building up its supply chain in China, the company also provides a very clear window into some of the problems with the China tariff processes and how they are hurting U.S. businesses and consumers. He describes how the raw materials he imports are hit with a 25% tariff. Yet if he were to fully assemble the speakers in China instead of in the U.S. and then import the finished product, the tariff would only be 7.5%. Much of these extra costs are then passed on to consumers, which makes his products less competitive in the international marketplace. Thus, what the tariffs are doing for him and companies in many U.S. industries is not only hurting their sales, but also encouraging further job losses in the U.S. and offshoring of higher-value-added manufacturing. Dan relays that the simple inputs for his speakers are not the type of manufacturing that is well-suited to the high labor rates in America, and in fact, many of the parts that he currently sources in China have never been pr produced in the U.S., he also explains his attempts to get the tariff structure changed through the exclusion process and also his interaction with U.S. politicians on this issue. To be clear, it is not that Dan is objecting to the U.S. being more tough on China, but that the tariffs, as they are implemented, are highly ineffective as a tool to do so, and that their effects 
are actually being borne by U.S. businesses and consumers, not China, as is more commonly believed. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Dan, welcome to China Corner Office. Good morning, Chris. It's great to be here with you this morning. Great. Well, well, again, sort of thanks so much for joining us. And, you know, I'd love to just hear a little bit at first about your business and particularly supply chain relationships in China. Sure. So Misco is a uh, loudspeaker manufacturer. So, And when I say speaker, I just want to clarify, I'm talking about the transducer that goes into most speaker systems. So we okay. do make systems, but our primary technology are the drivers themselves. Um, Misco has been building speakers since uh, the founding in 1949. We've been manufacturing speakers in America for 73 years. Uh, company was started by my father. Um, and uh, since that time, we make speakers for just about every application, uh, speakers for aerospace, uh, mass transit, um, gaming, home audio, professional audio, you name it. Uh, in fact, Misco is one of the few companies that still makes uh, transducers in America. And one of the projects that we've been working on is uh, the speakers that'll be going on the Orion spacecraft on the uh, mission to Mars. So uh, wow. Misco has some, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to be doing that type of thing. So Misco is a very well-known, well-established OEM speaker company here in the United States. You mentioned supply chain, and I think, you know, with that long history, we have quite a bit of experience with the changing of the supply chain over time. Back 25 years ago or so, the United States had a very, very robust loudspeaker manufacturing industry. There were many, many companies. And of course, if you go back even further than that, when we were building radios and televisions and a lot of consumer electronics in the United States, there were lots and lots of speaker companies and a very robust supply chain here in the United States. And then about 20, 25 years ago, uh, gradually the manufacturers of, you know, the TVs, the consumer electronics started moving production offshore. And then, of course, the supply chain follows, you know, so then the speaker manufacturers right. moved offshore and then the suppliers of those speaker manufacturers moved offshore. So the supply chain uh, has changed quite a bit over that period of time. And of course, for a company to survive, you have to change with the supply chain. Totally, no, can really understand that. Can you give a sense of, I think it's a, you know, it's a relatively complex product that you're building. What are some of the things that you're actually acquiring from the Chinese suppliers? And you mentioned it was about 20 years ago that, that, you know, that, that this transition occurred in, in the audio speaker industry. Can you say, also about how your firm sort of engaged in that process of changing, you know, like what, you know, early days, were you using middlemen? Did you find factories? Uh, just a little bit of detail on that would be really interesting. Sure. Well, China has become the, the center of the loudspeaker component um, driver manufacturing universe. So over time, uh, pretty much everybody in the world that builds speakers will has has gone to China to get the raw components. And by raw components, 
um, if I can use the speaker as an example, I'm talking about a stamped steel frame and a and a ferrite uh, magnet and a, a cold forged uh, magnetic uh, T yoke and uh, the cone, the diaphragm that moves. All of those parts um, today are there. Are, there's a very very large supply chain in China that make that. Um, so can I just hold on a second, Dan? So so our viewer our listeners won't have the the video so okay so you just kindly show me so so basically it's it's a it's a, a number of sort of stamped steel pieces um and we'll talk a little bit more about what you do in the u.s in a bit but i assume that i mean sort of those come over and then those you assemble and then i think there was also like a magnetic component um as well right right so there's the right so a loudspeaker is made up of uh, a stamped steel frame um a magnetic circuit. Um, it's a loudspeaker is like an electric motor. It it has a permanent magnetic and a, an electromagnet that uh, changes polarity as sound is put in, or as the signal is put into it, and that causes the the motion of the cone, and then the cone couples with air and produces sound waves. So right. um, so over time, all of those parts are largely made in China. It happened gradually at the very beginning maybe 20, 25 years ago, what we started noticing were, was the availability of some of the lower cost metal stamped parts. It became available in China. And because the costs were so significantly lower than what the U.S. manufacturers could provide, it really made business sense and it really became a, a requirement to be competitive to source those products. And in the early days, then we went through and had to use brokers and representatives who may have come to us representing a, a wide variety of speaker parts uh, manufacturers. And then we worked through these these middlemen. And then over time, we started establishing relationships with the factories directly. And that allowed us, of course, to have not only better pricing, but better control over quality design uh, the design work of new parts was easier to do because we could work, our engineering group could work directly with the customer's engineering group. So it happened over time. And eventually, of course, as that transition happened, there was a negative impact on the supply chain of those parts in the United States. You know, once the big users of loudspeakers, right. the big manufacturers of loudspeakers move their operations offshore, then their supply chain followed. And so then there wasn't much business left in the U.S. So today there's, there's maybe one company that does metal stamping for loudspeaker frames. There's one or two companies that, that form speaker cones. There's one company that makes the uh, electromagnetic voice coil. There, there are no companies that make magnets in the U.S. So... In order to be a, a loudspeaker manufacturer anywhere in the world, you're going to be buying your parts from China. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, could you say a little bit about actually how you manage that interface with the other, with, with, with these, you know, diverse factories that you're contracting with? You know, I teach doing business in China uh, at Cornell, you know, now moved to Cambridge. Uh, and one of the, th you know, a number of the business cases that we study you know, an issue is that U.S. companies actually have communication problems and gaps with their Chinese partners and just the importance of, 
you know, finding the right staff to, to manage that relationship. So can you say a little bit about how you actually are managing these relationships with your, um, with your Chinese producers? Well, I got very, very fortunate and quite by accident, and this was a number of years ago, maybe 25 years ago, um, I hired a person from China and she was hired to work on our assembly line. And as I got to know her, um, and her English was, was not, was, she was just, just come here. And so her English wasn't great, but over time she was a very diligent student and learned English. And we started talking more about what she had done. And what I learned was that she had actually run a factory in Southern China for a number of years. Oh, wow. I saw pictures of this woman in this factory and I was going like, well, who is this woman and what is she doing? And she said, that's me. And that's my factory that I ran. So (laughs) it was a garment factory, but, uh, but of course she understood how to run a factory. She understood how to do business in China. So I had immediately had this wonderfully experienced person who could help us bridge not only the language gap, but it was also somewhat of a business culture gap at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, expectations, how you do business, how you communicate expectations, how you communicate problems, how you resolve problems, all those kinds of things that, you know, if you're doing business with somebody down the street, you have certain ways of doing things that you just, you know, you kind of do because you're you're in that same environment. So it took us some time to do that, but, but she was a just has been a tremendous asset and and helped us then establish these factory direct relationships with these companies and and help find us the good factories and and find us the factories that were stable and had good management and of course one of the disadvantages of communication is not only uh, communicating at kind of a tactical level but also kind of understanding what their business is all about and and what their values are and things like that and so you, you need to have somebody in the room that you know is on your side advocating and communicating and things like that. And one of the problems early on when we were working with brokers is they're not necessarily on your team, you know, and you mm-hmm. don't always know that, you know. In fact, you may not even know what factory your product's coming out of because they're not transparent about that. So that was a really, really important step in going direct was then building the relationships with the factory and the factory owners so that you start to develop a common language, you know, and and I mean a language of of business. And one of the things that I I realized very early on was that these these business owners were had a lot in common, had a lot of the same values that that small businesses have in America. You know, Mm -hmm. we tend to think of this, you know, American business and Chinese business very, very different. But really when it comes down to it, a lot of these businesses were family businesses, family businesses that had been a- around for decades, had multiple members of the family working in them. So we shared a lot in common, and that helped to bridge the culture of the two companies doing business for, at such a far distance. And really has built, I've built some wonderful personal relationships with these factory owners over the years um, and their families. And, you know, we exchange, you know, holiday greetings and things mm-hmm. like that, um, which has really um, b- both added a richness to the relationship that goes beyond doing business, but of course also enhances the business relationships, especially when there are challenges. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, really great story and insight. I think that, you know, you hear all this sort of, I don't know, saber rattling and tension between the U.S. and China at the political level, but in the end, 
you know, I think the Chinese people and the American people, small businesses, you know, want to work together and I think are very similar in many ways. And I think, you know, having that employee, like you mentioned, is a real, such an important connector in that so that people, you can really sort of fully understand you know, each other. So that's really, I mean, you, you mentioned it as luck and I think, you know, it does sound like it was a really fortunate, you know, experience that you're able to find that, uh, find that employee. Yeah, it, it's been great. And one of the, one of the things that's kind of come out of this is just sort of a side note is I've, I've really, really gotten into Chinese tea. You know, oh, wow. I love Chinese tea. So when I go to China, I will, I will make sure I have extra room in my suitcase and all of you know, our suppliers know that I like really good tea. So um, I've, I've had a chance to explore tea culture in China, which has been another layer of, of you know, uh, enjoyment to the relationship building that we do in China. Because now we share not only a love of loudspeakers and audio and, and uh, that type of thing, but also tea. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's really a great point as well. I do find that, you know, you know, Chinese culture is so sort of rich and interesting and so many aspects to really enjoy. And, and it's a great place to be. And I think that, you know, Chinese as well, really, I think, appreciate when they can see someone not from China really resonate with, with different parts of it. I know, you know, I'm not an expert in tea, but I do always really enjoy the different, you know, trying different teas and different rituals uh, that are involved in it. So, very cool. Um, I'm curious uh, as well. So you talked a lot about sort of what you're getting from China. Can you say a little bit about then what you do with those materials in the U.S. and maybe some of the, I don't know, the design and other pre-work that you do that you send over to the factories? Sure. So so our our business model is here in here in St. Paul, Minnesota, where our we have our factory, our um, all of our engineering, everything we do here in this facility. Uh, we design. So let me back up a step. So our, our customers basically come to Misco for custom solutions, custom audio solutions. They have a product, or they have a they have something that needs audio. So our first step is really designing. Um, loudspeakers then that then meet their application of their need so our engineers will go through and then design the component parts that would go into the speaker you know the, i mentioned the frame and the the cone and things like that so we'll design all those parts um and then we'll send over 3d files cad files prints specifications things like that over to the various factories that then make those parts and there's you know every factory has a kind of a specialty in one of those areas. So in a loudspeaker, there's maybe 11 different parts. So we'll go then to 11 different facilities mm. and uh, develop that particular part. Um, and then we'll tool the part with them. They'll send the parts into us. Then we, um, we assemble the product, um, do all the testing, um, uh, you know, everything we need to do to make sure that our product uh, meets the customer's requirement. Now, one of the things we also are able to do at here is we've got extensive modeling capabilities and prototype capabilities. So we can actually develop a lot of the product before we start to tool it, uh, just mm -hmm. to know that everything's going to be right. Um, so our partners in China send the parts over, we put them together, we do the testing, um, and um, 
you know, and then once we're ready to go into production, we send over the orders. They start shipping container loads of parts over here, and, and off we go. Great. You know, one of the reasons I want to talk is is your experience with the tariffs that came about, you know, have come about in the last number of years. And so, you know, you're shipping, you know, raw materials over, not finished products. Um, and can you say a little bit about your experience with, uh, with the tariffs? Well, the, the tariffs have been, have been really, really an unfortunate occurrence, I think. In my opinion, they've, they've accomplished nothing. You know, we're, uh, when we're talking about the tariffs, we're talking about the Section 301 tariffs action against China. They've really accomplished nothing. And they have bled billions of dollars out of companies, American companies, that companies could be using for expanding, developing new products, reinvesting in R&D, hiring employees, lots of things. And so it started in 2018. And the, one of the unfortunate things is the very first list that we got on is what's called list three. And the, these lists are lists of HTS codes. HTS stands for Harmonized Tariff Schedule. Um, and these codes are then uh, the codes that are used when you import a product into the United States. They identify the type of a product that that is. And there's thousands of different codes. So on these lists then were these lists of codes. And, and each list then had a, a tariff applied to it. So the list three included all of the loudspeaker components that we use uh, mm. to, to build a product here in America. Currently, that list has a 25% tariff on it, which means that as soon as the, the container comes into the United States and it gets cleared, we are charged an additional 25% on the value of that part. So wow. if, if we bring in a container that has $100,000 worth of materials, there's a $25,000 cost to bringing that in on top of that. So it's, it, it's a really unfortunate because those are inputs that we need to do what we do here in the U.S. And um, one, of the, one of the things that's unfortunate is that, um, you know, we can, these parts that we bring in are typically fairly low cost parts. And actually the fabrication of many of these parts is fairly low technology, you know, metal stamping, forming, things like that, um, that is not really done in the United States um, at, at a high volume level anymore because of the cost. So we take these low value inputs and we're able to, through this engineering process and applying the, what we know about loudspeaker design to our, our many customers, we're able to transform those relatively low dollar inputs into a fairly high tech product. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the tariffs really um, uh, you know, uh, impede us from doing that competitively. Because the rest of the world, of course, our, our competitors in other parts of the world don't have this 25% tax. Right. So we're competing with other companies that don't have that. So it, it, puts a, it puts a stress on us to find other ways to add value or to pass on the cost to customers, which you know, makes us less competitive. Um, and additionally, one of the other unfortunate um, problems with the tariffs. And of course, this is part of the tariffs were put together very hurriedly and without much thought and without much strategic thinking by the 
by the Trump administration. And one of the things they did is they, they put onto list four um, Finnish loudspeakers made in China. Mm-hmm. And those, ca- those have a lower tariff. So like right now, um, though I can import a Finnish speaker, you know, like what I make here in the factory in Minnesota, I can import a Finnish speaker that's made in China with a 7.5% tariff, only 7.5%. Wow. So if I bring the parts in to be, uh, to be assembled, fabricated in an American factory, I pay 25%. If I buy the speaker completely finished in China, no American value except our engineering and bring it in at 7.5%. It struck me as as how how backwards is that, right? How, right. and but you know that's that's part of the problem with the way the tariffs were applied is that that type of strategic thinking wasn't considered, you know. Whereas if it was the other way around, oh, gee, that's a benefit to an American manufacturer, you know. Let's put the twenty five percent tariff on the finished product coming in from China and a seven and a half percent on the parts. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds like, I mean, that is a sure way to lose jobs in St. Paul, Minnesota, that, you know, there's very low incentive for you to continue manufacturing there when you can actually have them assembled in China and and actually have it cost less, uh, you know, and you wouldn't have to have your facility. And you know? I mean, it's it really, you know, it sounds, you know, 100% counterproductive. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. It's completely counterproductive. And and it's it's frustrating as a you know as a business guy you know it's it's obvious it, you know when you explain this to people people have exactly the same reaction that you have which is like wow that makes no sense but it's it's been almost impossible during these three years to get anybody that has any influence over that policy to listen to that kind of an argument and and by the way it's not just the loudspeaker industry in America that's facing this situation with tariffs, there's lots of industries that are in exactly the same situation. They need these low-cost inputs from China to compete in a global marketplace and then are hampered by this by the tariffs. So, um, so we collectively have been raising our voices for three years saying, you know, this, there, there needs to be some, uh, you know, a look at this. And, and by and large, Washington has been uh, completely uh, indifferent to this. Um, wow. Yeah, and and even the process that was set up, which was a process to uh, provide exclusions to tariffs, mm-hmm. right? Um, this has not been very successful um, it, because it was set up again very hurriedly, um, with no uh, no obvious criteria for what would allow a tariff to be ex- or a, 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 an HTS code to be excluded from the tariffs. Uh-huh. Um, and so there was a process for submitting um, tariff exclusion requests. But by a very, very, very small percentage of those requests were ever uh, granted. And now um, ongoing, that pro- there is no process for doing that right now. Wow. So, so here we are, you know, three years into this thing, you know, going four years into this thing, and there's really no way for us to bring this this um, situation up. Yeah. So, did you were you involved in trying to get an exclusion uh, based on the 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 import code that you have? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I teamed up with a couple other uh, loudspeaker manufacturers here in the U.S. because 
the way that the exclusion process works is um, is that once an HTS code is excluded, then anybody that uses that HTS code to import products, their their products are excluded. So it isn't a company by company exclusion. It's a it's an entire right. HTS code exclusion. So we we I contacted other manufacturers who were in exactly the same situation we were and said, let's work together on this. So we together crafted, wrote, filled out the, the forms, requests for exclusions. And we picked parts that not only were not made in the United States, but actually had never been made in the United States, thinking, well, this should be pretty obvious, right? right. There's, there, you know, there, there, this part has never been made here. And by the way, there are no there's nobody making these here today. And if we want to be globally competitive manufacturing in America, we need not to have this 25% burden placed on our, on our parts. So we submitted the, those uh, exclusion requests, took several months to learn that they were denied and there was no explanation. Mm. There was no, here's why we've decided this. It was just no. Just blanket no. Oh, and that's yeah. it. Because probably, I mean, if they had provided some rationale, I mean, that would be, you know, you could at least maybe not agree with them, but at least have a reason to understand it. But, but yeah, just a, just a straight, straight no is not very helpful. Yeah, um, it, 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 it wasn't helpful. And, and, yeah. and there's no, there's no appealing, there's nothing like that. So I'm curious, have you engaged, you know, your local politicians, um, you know, house members, senators, you know, I'm curious. I mean, that's another route to try to address this. Any traction there? Obviously, Minnesota is a relatively liberal state, and maybe, you know, was not closely tied to the Trump administration. But, but I'm curious. Yeah, what sort of interaction you had with your local politicians? Yeah, we we started contacting them right away. Uh, early on, their response was, "Well, you know, that's you know that's a uh, that comes out of the administration that's a US trade representative offices thing and you know we don't have a lot of influence over that and you know and and over time you know we uh, they started to understand that yeah we can see that this is a challenge for you but but politically China is a difficult topic right business with China is very is complex so they they have to look at it and they look at it from a you know, like, how does it sound, right? So if, if you know, so the answers that I would get back from, from my representatives would be, yeah, that, you know, that's really unfortunate. We really support small businesses. We support American manufacturing. Um, but, you know, but we have to hold China accountable for this and that. And this is one of the tools we have. So unfortunately, and, you know, this was true during the Trump administration and it's true during the Biden administration, is there is bipartisan support for, but I, I, I hear it all the time, being tough on China, you know, what, mm -hmm. whatever that means, right? I don't know exactly what that means, but it, it, well, I think what it means to a politician is that it means that if they come out in a, with a policy that would appear to be in some way compromising or acquiescing or things like that um, to China, then that, that gives them a weakened position. So unfortunately tariffs have gotten kind of in the background you know and now you know even in washington today there's lots more activity about new trade deals and things like that and so everybody's sort of learned to live with the tariffs i mean 
in, in their world, they've learned to live with it. Right. Um, you know, those of us who have to deal with it on a, on a day-to-day basis, of course, it's, it, it's an ongoing problem. So there are some, um, you know, there's some action. There's, there's some House members that um, are signing on to letters to uh, open, reopen the exclusion process, mm-hmm. which seems like a very rational way to proceed with this would be to say, look, let's set up a, a process for reviewing these tariffs. Let's allow companies like ours or industries like ours to make a case for why we need our products excluded from the tariffs and then have them reviewed uh, in some way. Um, up to this point, it's been very disappointing that the at current administration has really taken no interest or you know no action on reopening this process. It, it seems to us that it would be a fairly simple way to do it, but um, right. you know, at most, where they've 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 gotten to is to say, well, let's consider um, let's consider uh, allowing previously granted exclusions uh, to continue. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is that very very small number right. of those that were granted two or three years ago. But yeah. there hasn't been much action since that. Got it. I mean, that was actually where where I was going to go next to sort of see you know, what sort of recommendation you might have for the Biden administration. It sounds like, so certainly one of them is, you know, rethink, open up, become more strategic about the exclusion process. Um, any, any other thoughts or recommendations you'd have uh, if you had like, I don't know, Catherine Tai or, or, you know, even Joe Biden on the phone? Yeah. Well, I, I would definitely, that would be the easiest thing. But, uh, you know, I, I think that they they have to understand the tremendous burden they're putting on American businesses with these tariffs. And and not only American businesses, but American consumers, because ultimately these get passed on. I mean, we're, we're running at, what, 7% inflation? And inflation is not caused by the tariffs, but it's a, it's a component of that inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, what, it's, what it also is doing is um, the Biden administration has, a, you know, this massive infrastructure bill that they'd like to pass, creating jobs, things like that. Well, guess what? These tariffs are killing jobs and are, mm-hmm. are causing us not to add jobs because, you know, number one, we're paying all this money and, you know, I can't hire people. Number two, it's incentivizing us to not add jobs in the United States. So it, there's a dissonance, there's a cognitive dissonance in their policy of job creation, helping the middle class, helping better jobs, all of that stuff with this policy of tariffs because it's it they're, they're working against each other. So I would like them to consider that that finding another way to hold whatever you know have this dialogue with China about there's serious issues we everybody gets that right there's mm-hmm. I, there's intellectual property issues there's human rights issues we all understand that those are issues but that you don't, you're not solving the issues by penalizing American businesses, American workers, American consumers with this tariff policy. Yeah. So no. I would really love to see them say, you know what, it didn't work. It wasn't a good idea. It hasn't gotten us anything. It's caused a lot of damage. Let's let's stop that. Let's go in a new direction. Other- Let's go yeah. in a different direction, yeah. right? And we had hoped that the Biden administration would come in with a fresh set of eyes 
um, and you know realized that the 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 previous administration had really gone at this thing hastily, and that the new administration would say, you know what, there's a better way to do this. But uh, it's been very disappointing for us here in the business world to see that they really have not picked up on this at all. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm sure it relates a little bit to what you were saying earlier about how you know this sort of perception of being tough on China is what the politicians are judged on, and so you know this is something I think the majority of Americans you know don't they don't understand that actually they are the people that are paying for the tariffs, and so you know it's an easy thing to just keep you know sort of kick the can down the road so so to speak and not have to actually do, you know have the political will to actually make make a change so yeah, yeah and it's unfortunate when these tariffs rolled out of course the previous administration kept saying China's paying these tariffs China's <laughs> paying these tariffs you know we're China's going to pay right. us billions and billions of dollars in tariffs and and we're all going no you know <laughs> we're we're paying the tariffs America's paying the tariffs so, but I think a lot of that got got embedded into people's attitudes that the right. tariffs are a problem, a, a China problem, not an America problem, and it is an America problem. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Thank you for, for sad to hear it, but I hopefully, you know, if enough people are saying this message, you know, in enough different places, including including here, we can, you know, aff affect some change. Uh, one of the other things I, I sort of had on my list that I wanted to talk to you about in a little different direction. You know, not to sort of nerd out too much on supply chains and, and manufacturing systems, but one of the things I found so interesting about the supply chain infrastructure in China and why it continues, even with rising costs, to be so competitive is like local clustering. So you mentioned these different parts along the process of making a loudspeaker. I assume those are, you know, clustered in some location or region um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience with that aspect. Let's say when you go over to China, you know, and are visiting factories, you know, you know, are, are they consolidated in a certain location? And can you give a little bit of flavor uh, for maybe some of the benefits that has for the supply chain? Yeah, well, a lot of the electronics manufacturing in China and specifically the loudspeaker industry is done down in Guangdong province, mm -hmm. southeastern China. And the reason for that is that a lot of the factories, loudspeaker factories and loudspeaker component factories, actually came out of Taiwan. Oh, um, you know, huh. back the electronics flow kind of was, you know, back, we go back 50, 60 years, you know, it was low cost parts coming out of Japan, right? Mm -hmm. we, we remember transistor radios and things right. like that. Well, you, you maybe are too young, Chris, but <laughs> I certainly... No, I... I certainly remember my 1960s uh, trans transistor radio. Wow. But then as Japan got more expensive, it moved to Taiwan. Um, and then when Taiwan got a little bit too expensive for some of these lower cost products, a lot of those business people transplanted their factories into, this, uh, into Guangdong province and set up factories. And so a lot of, for example, a lot of our businesses, that, the factories that we do business with, are actually Taiwanese owned. Okay. Um, there's getting to be more and more Chinese owned factories in our industry, but but initially they were almost all Taiwanese owned, and they tended to congregate in certain areas, and not just. I mean, the Guangdong province is a big. It's a big province, you know. Right. But they ended up clustering, as you mentioned, in 
in very, very local um, areas. So there maybe be one or two large speaker factories in those areas, and then they would have parts suppliers nearby. It was, it was, you know, it was very, very smart at the time, of course, because it allowed parts to move very, very quickly from component factory to assembly factory. From our perspective, then, as we started developing our supply chain over there, we did the same thing. And we started looking at parts suppliers that were largely in the same area and often that had part components going to a, a factory or two that we would actually subcontract with. So that when I go over there to visit or anybody from our procurement team goes over to visit, we can stay in a, in a town, in a hotel, and... And in a day, we can probably visit three or four different factories um, in wow. that area. You know, in a car, we can have, you know, be at one, one factory at 8.30 in the morning and have morning tea and do a factory visit and talk business and then get in the car and drive to the next factory and have a, a visit and have lunch. And, you know, and, and we can probably do that three or four times during the day. So in the course of a week, you could see, you know, 20 factories very easily, mm. which is extremely efficient, right? And one of the other things that I've done, um, you know, it, it, we have a very collaborative spirit in America. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've, I feel like we do between American businesses. And, and I've tried to develop that same spirit amongst our suppliers in China. So mm. when I go over, one of the things that I will do towards the end of the week that I'm there is I will throw a party oh, that's great. in my hotel, a big dinner, and I will invite all of our suppliers to that party. And for some of them, they know of each other, at least at the beginning, they maybe knew of each other. But over time, I've been able to actually develop a lot of relationships between those companies. And not just between the companies, but between the, the owners and the, and the people mm -hmm. in the companies to create um, kind of our own little group. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think it, 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 it helps us work better together. You know, um, we can have suppliers send, I will have some suppliers send over materials to one of the suppliers who will then consolidate the shipment for us at their oh, factory, nice. rather than to have to have everything going to a port individually. You know, this way it's more efficient for us. So by having these, these suppliers close together, we've been able to make our own supply chain more efficient, make our visits more efficient, and, and actually develop this uh, spree de corps even between the suppliers. Mm -hmm. And that even includes some suppliers that are competitors. Wow. Um, we've actually been able to, because we're, we're pretty clear on, we use this supplier for these types of, of products, and we use that supplier for those types of products. And so they actually, even competitors have found ways to sort of work together in, a, in America, that's pretty pretty common. I don't think it's as common in China that the competitors would relate right. together like that. Huh. Man, that that's, that's another really interesting story. And certainly, you know, one of the things that a lot of the cases that we study in my class illustrates is, you know, this importance of, in some ways, doing business over, over dinner and, and having sort of the social glue that's also part of the business relationship. So... You know, it sounds like with your tea interest, I don't know if there's any, I don't know, Baijiu or any other drinking at, <laughs> drinking at those, but it seems that you've really ad adapted to the Chinese way of doing business very well. Yes, uh, I, I have um, I have a couple suppliers that, that have uh, introduced me to Baijiu, and okay. uh, uh, it's, 
it's it's strong, you know. But yeah. it's part it's part of, you know, gumbe. I mean, it, gumbe, yeah, cheers, exactly. right? It's yeah. part of it is part of the building that relationship, and 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 you know, all businesses is about relationships. It's you know, I, I don't care where you do business in the world. It's about developing relationships, and relationships um, are built built on trust. And you build trust by over periods of time at a personal level, um, getting through difficulties together, getting through challenges, problems, you know, honoring your commitments with each other. You know, we give you a PO, you ship it on time. Your quality is what we expect. We pay you on time. All of those very, very fundamental components are such an important part of relationship and even more so when you're doing business at a distance where you don't see them as often as you normally would you know now with the pandemic i'm usually over there a couple times a year and i haven't been over there now for a couple years um so it 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 you you need those relationships to be strong so that when you have something like this come up now right um where you can't see people um, and you have to communicate remotely and things like that. You've already got this really, really strong relationship in place. Yeah, it does sound like a great competitive advantage. Um, uh, one of the sort of the, the last topic I actually want to discuss with you. We've touched on a couple t- a couple times. You know, your the shipping containers that come in, and you know, you get the additional twenty five percent, you know, tacked on and and um, et cetera. But you know, I know we're in this global shipping crisis. You know, I'd just be interested to hear how that has affected your business. You know, is is there delays, things not showing up? You know, how, what's what's going on with with the loudspeaker business and the supply chain crisis? I'll, I'll tell you this: th- these last three years have just been the perfect storm. You know, tariff, pandemics, inflation, supply chain. You know, um, delays. Uh, it's I've been doing this for a long time, and I've never been through. I've been through each one of these kind of separately, but I've never been through all of them together. So, um, well, yeah, the supply chain delays have been horrendous this year. Um, We have, you know, we have containers that are delayed months. um, And a lot of the delays are on this side. You know, it's it's coming down to, um, early on there were some delays coming out of China because of shutdowns. And and there could be more of that in the future too. But a lot of the delays had to do with not getting um, ships unloaded um, at, at ports. A lot of our containers go through Long Beach, and Long Beach mm-hmm. is an extremely busy port. And there's, you know, there's dozens of ships waiting to be unloaded at any one time, and wow. so there's massive delays there. And of course, that's exacerbated by the pandemic, by um, you know labor shortages, you know, a, a, a lot of these things, and and the supply chain delays end up there's a domino effect you know because you have a delay in one spot and then it can cause okay you get all these ships unloaded and now you've got to have them go onto trucks or onto rail chassis well geez we have a shortage of trucks we have a shortage of rail chassis and then you load you find enough of those and you you know a lot of our stuff gets uh on the rail to chicago well the chicago rail yards i i mean i heard there was you know miles miles of 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 unloaded rail cars in chicago for months right so and again same problems what do we where do we put them where do we unload them who don't who unloads them 
So it's resulted, this whole chain reaction has resulted in delays of months. I, we had a container come in um, just before the end of the year that was due in June. Wow. Well, how do you plan for that kind yeah. of delay? I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. So, I mean, what you end up doing is, um, on one hand, you often end up putting stuff on an airplane. Mm. which is extremely expensive. You know, if you're talking heavy parts, you know, steel parts, right. magnets, stuff like that, it's very, very expensive to do it. So you have to be very careful about that. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that you start buying more than you need. So you end up um, ballooning your inventory, um, mm -hmm. you know, because you don't, you know there's going to be future delays. Uh, you know, so the whole, you know, just in time mantra, you know, right. lean inventory, you know, things like that. Boy, it's hard right now because, yeah. um, you, you know, you, if, if you delay, if you're delayed to get your components, you're delayed to get your customer, their parts and customers aren't, they're understanding, but they're not happy. It, it impacts their business. So this whole, these whole supply chain um, dislocations have been really, really hard on uh, the American economy. I mean, you've seen. Uh, pictures of you know of car manufacturer automobile manufacturers that have automobiles stacked up because they can't finish them right because they're right. Um, and that's been another not only the container problem but the electronic component shortages has been concurrent with this mm -hmm. um, is we've had these all these chip shortages and so we're all scrambling around buying you know spot buys how do we find these things you know buying from brokers brokers are buying a bunch of them hoarding them selling them making money it's so that has been an additional challenge in the electronics part of our industry has been just getting all these components so you know it's i i think i would say that the shipping part has gotten a little bit better recently so in, instead of delays of months the delays might be a month or two. Okay. Um, but, you know, the pandemic's not over. And in China in particular, you know, they have this zero tolerance policy. Mm -hmm. and, and we've had factories and towns that our factories are in shut down. Right. Um, and that means nothing moves out of there. And so there's other delays and they could shut down ports. They could shut down a lot of things. So, um you know, this isn't over yet. And, and until yeah. the pandemic is largely behind us, I think these delays are going to continue all the way through the system in all the, all the places I've just mentioned. Well, you know, I, I, I hate to end on a less than, <laughs> <laughs> less than optimistic note, but, but, but I, you know, on the positive side, you know, Dan, I just do want to say, you know, my hat is off to you sort of managing through these years with this, you know, tariff, pandemic, um, you know, all these supply chain issues. And, and it, it's, it's really wonderful to hear about all the really positive work you're doing with these Chinese factories and actually tr as well trying to keep, you know, high value manufacturing and jobs in the U.S. So thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on China Corner Office. It's my pleasure. American businesses are innovative, resilient. You know, we you know we know how to get through these tough times, and we'll get through this, and American businesses will too. But thanks, it's been a pleasure to be with you today, Chris. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>